You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked-about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Well, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the last several years about how democracy is under attack, how people don't seem to be as engaged, and how our political systems seem to be in trouble. And we wonder, in many cases, about our future. Well, there's lots of people out there working on this, which is good to know. And I'm going to speak with one of them today. And my guest today is Elizabeth Clay Roy. And Elizabeth is a pro-democracy change maker. She's the CEO of an organization called Generation Citizen, which partners with schools to provide 6th to 12th grade students with the knowledge and skills they need to actively participate in our democracy. Liz is a collaborative leader, and she is also involved in the Civic Learning Pillar as its co-chair at the Partnership for American Democracy, which is a new pluralist field builder and the Coalition for 50 Times 2026. And she'll tell us all about all of those. But prior to joining Generation Citizen, Liz led roles at Take Root Justice, Phipps Neighborhood and South Bronx Rising Together in New York City. She was also the founding deputy director of Opportunity Nation, a national campaign to expand economic mobility with research partner Measure America. She, there she created the Opportunity Index, a first-of-its-kind measurement of contributing factors for economic opportunity at the state and local level. She has a background in city planning and actually spent time in Bangalore, India, She's also a longtime champion of experiential learning, and she serves on the board of World Learning, a leader in study abroad and global development. I actually met Liz through a different organization. I happen to be on the board of an organization called Convergence Policy, and that organization gets people together of various points of view to try to solve really difficult problems. And Liz actually participated in a particular problem that I hope we'll get a chance to talk about so that you can hear from her about that experience as well. Liz, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thank you so much. I am really excited to be here uh, and appreciate the opportunity to be in conversation at this really important moment for our country. So Liz, it seems that a lot of your experience is in this whole democracy building and citizen awareness, citizen help, help, self-help with democracy field. How did that happen for you? How did you get connected with this particular brand of work? It's a great question. And and in some ways, I think it was pretty organic. I am on both sides of my family, I have educators in my background. I, ha- including having a great aunt who was a civics teacher in North Carolina in the 1950s. And it really was, I think, a part not only of the upbringing that I had at home, but something that was a value for my family that we 
thought about what was going on in the community, what was going on in our city, in our state, in the nation, as important as what was going on in our own individual lives, and therefore was a part of dinner table conversations, was a part of our commitment to volunteering and getting involved, was a part of a recognition that I was never told that I had to wait till I turned 18 to get involved in my community. And so I was actively involving and volunteering and supporting from when I was in my early teens. So I really credit my family with raising me with a clear sense of my interdependence with my community. And that as I grew and developed talents or skills along the way, continued in my education, that that wasn't mine alone, right? That that was connected to the community that I was growing up in. And so as I was thinking about what my own path might be professionally, and had a chance to study city planning, had a chance to study political science and other areas, as well as looking at some of the critical issues around economic and educational equity. A core theme that kept coming back for me was the sense that those with the solutions to some of our most challenging problems are those who are closest to those problems, right? Those who are living in a neighborhood know better than someone down in a, a city planning office what it is that they need for their community to thrive day to day. And so my understanding about what it looked like to be a, a good city planner or what it looked like to be an effective leader in an economic opportunity organization was always how do we use this institution and create platform for those who are closest to the problem to become the change makers, to be the problem solvers. And so I've always been interested in what sometimes is called participatory democracy or processes that really are more focused on giving a platform to those closest to each, each issue to be the true decision makers. And that my role has been throughout my career as being a facilitator of spaces that are involving those who are closest to issues to, to be involved in decision making. That brought me to a number of roles that, you know, you mentioned in that really thoughtful bio about my work with Opportunity Nation on economic opportunity. But I'll say a quick word about South Bronx Rising Together, where I spent five years I'm on a collective impact initiative in the heart of the South Bronx with a focus on how do we ensure that every young person in this community has the opportunity to really have the education and the career that is a springboard to success. And the focus of that work was to say, we can't only do this with the schools, right? That there is a way in which all sectors have a role to play in supporting young people's success from the pediatricians to the local businesses, as well as the teachers. And, but we had to start with what do students and parents want from their education system? And how do we make sure that they are stakeholders whose voices matter in decision-making at the community level? And so that's been this common thread, connecting to the wisdom of those closest to our challenges and, and really proud to do that now with young people who absolutely um, have a vision for how they can make change at the community and school level. So let's talk about that. You're now the CEO of Generation Citizen. What does Generation Citizen do and how does it go about its work? What was it founded to do? So Generation Citizen is 13 years old and we are a community-based civics education organization. We partner with middle schools and high schools around the country. We typically partner with school districts who will bring Generation Citizen to all of the schools in their community. And we partner with them so that they bring into a class, it can be middle schoolers or high schoolers, but it'll typically be for a semester of a, a student's civics or U.S. history or government class. And they will have the opportunity to engage in what's called an action civics curriculum, where they are pairing their book knowledge of civics, the history and, and civics knowledge to understand what the infrastructure of self-government, what's the infrastructure of our democracy. But pairing that with hands-on learning, because they are practicing democracy while they are learning about it. What does that look like? Begins with a teacher 
And we provide both a curriculum and professional development to the teacher and coaching to teachers to guide them through the process so that they create a democratic classroom where students on their Generation Citizen Days are invited to really learn all of the skills that we need as effective citizens in a democracy. And what do those skills include? First, it means being able to identify where are the issues that we see from our own lived experience, where our own government and our community could be in a better place. And then that that's not something that we hold alone, but that's something that we talk to our peers about. And so students are identifying issues going on in their community and talking to each other about them. They're doing perspective taking and building empathy while they hear what's going on for other students. They then are taking that and then doing some research, right? So it's not only what's going on for those students, but they're doing research and and polling and looking at census data and, and, and connecting with students around the school to identify what issues are present. Now, we teach that democracy is not an individual sport, but a team sport. And so the students as a class identify one issue that they're going to take on together over the course of the semester and try to make change. So one of the most interesting classes in the GC semester is often the one where the students have to select an issue. Students are often choosing between some things that might be going on directly at the school level, like a a dress code issue. You might be talking about issues that are going on um, in between school and their community, like mental health issues, substance use, issues around nutrition. We know so many students have one of their largest meals of the day at school. And what happens if school nutrition is not meeting the needs of students? And I can share some examples of that. And students are also talking about economic issues, right, that are when they will recognize or learn through this process that maybe someone, some students in their school are facing housing instability. How is it that they can take action both to create a healthier school community, but also propose action that might happen at the state or city level, at the town level, that would support those students in a more robust fashion? Or they might pick an issue that's at the purely at the local or state level, where they might be looking at, for example, school funding formulas, might be looking at some environmental issues that are relevant for the town where their school is based, and they're concerned about pollution, they're concerned about quality of water, concerned about um, any matter of issues where they are directly and personally impacted and connected right? So the students identify that issue, and then we have an advocacy hourglass where they go through a process of issue identification, participatory action research, and then selecting their action project. And then how can they bring that issue in the most effective fashion to the right decision makers and seek to make change? And I'm incredibly, incredibly proud to lead this organization, which has now worked with over 143,000 students who have participated in this program over seven states. And the fact is, young people are not citizens in waiting, right? 14-year-olds, 16-year-olds, they are very much experiencing both some of the incredible assets that our communities have and also some of its deepest, deepest challenges. And they have something meaningful and powerful to say. We close each of our semesters with Civics Day, where students bring their action projects and share that with the community. And that can include sharing it with elected officials, sharing it with folks from the major newspapers, editorial board, and a range of community leaders, foundation leaders, and others. And it is so phenomenal so phenomenal to walk through the the hallways and hear these students present on their work and present their expertise. And in that process, you can imagine students are developing these incredible communication skills, critical thinking skills, and the kind of advocacy skills that matter not only as they become effective citizens, But they matter in their own lives, right? Because once you've been an advocate on behalf of cleaning up your local park, it becomes easier to advocate for yourself in terms of saying, here's why I would be a good fit for this next job. And so the the students really develop this sense of agency that goes beyond civics, but also is incredibly important for having them having a sense of 
ownership and belonging for their local government. So, Elizabeth, that was terrific to know that you're doing this work with our young people and they're getting an opportunity to experience really their democracy in action through their learning, which is terrific. But tell me about the problem. I mean, we didn't have this to the same extent, I guess, when I was growing up a thousand years ago. Uh, we, we were taught certainly civics in school. Some of us got an understanding of it. Some of us didn't. But maybe the stakes weren't as great then as they seem to be now. Explain to me what the nature of the problem is that your organization is and must solve for our country right now. Thanks for this question. You know, I I think there are a few key challenges. One that is um, certainly an issue now that wasn't an issue 50 years ago, and that has been that civics education has seen reduced funding compared to other fields. I have deep appreciation for the uh, increase in STEM funding um, and and funding for, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. And we know that that's happened for all of the right reasons. But we've seen really significant increase in spending in that area, as well as other areas that are more typical for state-level assessments and a decrease in funding for civics and for social studies in general. And so that's one of the broader issues that's really a challenge for the field. But thinking about the problem in a more holistic way, we know that our democracy is in trouble. Our our democracy, whether you look at um, some of the international assessments and folks who look around the world and rate democracies and different forms of government uh, on an annual or semi-annual basis, they have defined the United States as now a backsliding democracy, or others will use the term anocracy, right, moving away from democracy towards autocracy. These are quite distressing indicators about the state of our democracy overall. And just as distressing are the fact that when we look at Pew studies, which have looked at trust over many years, have seen 50-year decline in trust in this country, both decline in trust that individuals have for public institutions or other community institutions, and a decline in trust for each other. Finally. Harvard Institute of Politics does an annual poll of young people, and in their most recent polls found that young people themselves, 18 to 29, felt that our democracy is in trouble. Our democracy is not up for the challenge of moving forward. All of these are indicators of what I think many people feel in their gut, which is that we are just in, our society is, is pulling apart. And it is hard to know what institutions can be trusted, if any, who's looking out for you. And it raises particular issues for young people who are developmentally making a choice about how am I going to relate to the community around me? Right. They're they're coming out of the time when the focus is on their nuclear family their extended family, and even their circle of friends, to thinking about, okay, what does my life start to look like as I move into independence? And that's a time when we very much want people to feel a sense of belonging and connection to a community at large so that they have the confidence to then have choice-filled lives um, that are supported, scaffolded by a healthy society. So when young people are growing up without that scaffolding, without that sense that society is there to support them or that they have a place in it, well, that contributes to some of the distress that we know our young people are facing in terms of mental health issues that they are talking about all the time and the potential alienation that we know is possible for so many and that we see many of the outcomes of. And that's why we think about our work at Generation Citizen both around how do we support students' civic skills, civic knowledge, civic disposition. We are deeply interested in the highest quality, excellent academic outcomes for young people, right? We want our young people to absolutely be graduating from leaving middle school and graduating from high school with a solid understanding about how government works at every level. 
But we also know that the project-based component, the hands-on component of working with their peers and getting to know local officials, that really helps deepen their sense of belonging and agency in their communities. Generation Citizen has worked, um, as I mentioned, in seven states, and we work in, in rural, suburban, and urban communities. And I think there's special, actually, opportunities in each of those kinds of communities. And I'll talk briefly about urban and rural communities, right? In urban communities, in a place like Harlem, where I live and where we work with many students, you know, they're growing up in a city of 8 million people. And so it's so important that they can feel that they, even as one in 8 million, has a stake that they are seen, that their action and their ideas can actually be heard by someone in city council, someone in city council can, can take action. And that gives them a really powerful sense of, of responsibility and connection, even to be living in one of the largest cities in the world. And that's important for their agency. What we hear about with rural students is often rural students will grow up, especially in the high school years, starting to think about, okay, if I want to, you know, if I aspire to this career or that career, or I aspire to this kind of life, I'm not sure that's possible in the town where I live because I haven't seen anyone just like me doing it. So they might start to think that their aspirations or their vision for a, a, a thriving arts community or their vision for being involved in, in a particular profession is something they have to leave their town for. But what we hear is that students, by participating in action civics curriculum, and they start to see the change that they can make, because often in rural communities, they're able to get the mayor into the classroom. They're able to get the person who's in charge of the parks department into the classroom or go visit with them and, re and realize that that's somebody who actually they're quite proximate to. And they realize their deep power and their ability as a class to really be an active voice in their community that gives them a sense of, oh, I don't, if I want to do big things, I can do those right here. Or I can think about what other resources do we want to bring into our community to have our community be a place that we would want to live for the long term. And so that's why I think this work is so needed in every kind of community in this country, precisely at a time when levels of distrust for what's happening in Washington are getting worse and worse. And we can't wait for things in Washington to get resolved, to have young people feel a sense of connection and agency because otherwise it won't happen, right? We need this generation actually to be part of changing what's in Washington, but they have to do that by feeling a sense of responsibility and agency in their communities. I wonder what you would say about maybe these three factors and how that is influencing the need for your work. One would be, of course, the increasing diversity, the growing diversity in our country and the sense that people have different ideas about how the country should be run, how their communities should be run, that may not always jive with the sort of incumbent culture that we've had here in the United States. So their social cultural clashes that we're seeing as a result of rising diversity in demographics. So that's one factor. Another factor might be the rise in our ability to speak out and have our voices heard via social media and other media channels that maybe we didn't have many years ago. And this ability that we have, we can all be activists overnight. You know, we can all get our, our voices out uh, one way or another, even if we don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> you know, sometimes we don't know what we're talking about. We're out there just saying stuff, right? And those things, depending on who says them, has an influence on how we see the trustworthiness of our institutions. And then I would say, lastly, the fact that we know more about our institutions now than we did in the past, or we think we know more, right? We Institutions have this microscope. We can see things inside of them that we may not have been able to see before. We can get to know our politicians in ways that we could never get to know them in the past. And 
many things before could be hidden that can't be hidden now. And so what we are learning makes us maybe somewhat less trusting of those institutions when those things may have been hidden. I just wonder what you think about those three factors and and how that also makes what you're doing so important because we need to make sure that young people have the appropriate orientation and expectation really about what their democracy is, what it's supposed to do and what it's capable of. You know, this is your your first question is one of the reasons why our curriculum and the classroom culture is grounded in values for our work. And as students, this work is going to look different based on the teacher who's providing it and and what's going on in the that classroom. We feel very strongly that there are five key values to community-based action civics that can help students really get the most from this and be best prepared to engage in, in democracy. And a couple of those that are really important and relate to your first question, one is collaboration and diversity. I think this work is especially important in the context of, of increasing diversity. And it really provides young people with a framework for how to have healthy conversations across lines of difference and diversity around big topics. Again, students are navigating topics in these discussions that they're navigating in their real lives. Substance use, poverty, issues related to uh, to racism and bigotry, as well as issues related to school dress code, right? And their ability to have those conversations and sometimes come to consensus across lines of difference, they're tackling something that we know that we as adults don't always get right. And in fact, are getting wrong perhaps more often than getting right these days. And so that's why supporting students around how they incorporate multiple points of view effectively, both from each other, but also from their texts, from what they're reading, right? So that they have a keen analysis, critical thinking and and critical media analysis as they're reading different sources that are informing their planning. All of that is grounded in the recognition that we are stronger when we have different points of view and that makes our action more effective reason why I feel like it's especially exciting to be doing this work with middle schoolers and high schoolers right now is our, your point about increasing diversity and the demographic changes, they're happening with young people first, right? We know the majority of our public school students in this country are, are students of color. And so students in, in all kinds of communities, right? Not just urban, but of course, rural and suburban are all navigating, engaging in more diverse environments that w- they will carry through their working lives and through their community lives. And that they are, in fact, coming forward better equipped than perhaps their grandparents were. And so working with them, but also having them work with the teachers and having them work with leaders to say, this is something that we're used to. This is something that we've grown up in is, is I think, especially exciting. And part of the reason why at our organization, we're also committed to intergenerational decision making and have a number of alumni of our program on our board of directors, because I do think that there are things that Gen Z are coming up with that are really meaningful for all of us. That brings me right into your second question about social media and social media as a tool for activism. What I love about the approach that we take with teachers to engage young people with the advocacy hourglass and all of the tools that they can take to um, make positive action is that we are imparting imparting it in just that way. They are having the opportunity to have a toolbox for making change. They will through the GC experience, add some tools to that toolbox. They will then, from their experience through their church group, through youth organizing group, through hanging out with their friends, they're going to add additional tools. And social media is one of those tools. And what the, the, the process of GC helps them experience fully and with some rigor to it, because it, it's a process that we've now done for 13 years, is to see, okay, what's the right tool for this challenge? Because social media is an amazing tool, 
but it's not the right tool for every challenge, right? And knocking on the door of a city count of a member of city council is an excellent tool that actually probably isn't used nearly enough. And so to know that, okay, I've got all these tools in my toolbox, these are all available to me. What's the right one for this problem is one of the most important lessons I think we're trying to, to teach that, that social media is just, is just a part of what it is that they can do to make change. And that comes really to your last question about we can see into institutions. We, there's a lot more visibility than there was 20 or 30 years ago, which has benefits. So that level of transparency has enormous benefits, but it also can contribute to a broader sense of mistrust. And that's why civics education broadly, not only the approach that we take, but broadly is especially important because we have to ensure that the rising generation takes to heart that in a democracy like ours, where we are practicing self-government, government is us. It is us. And so when it is failing visibly, that's for us to then take action and make a change. Voting is one piece of that. We, we know we talk a lot about voting as a piece of that, and there are others as well. And so why I, I care so deeply about the power of project-based civics is that we have to make sure that young people have a positive experience and some sense of hope. And a positive experience doesn't mean that they always get what they advocate for. But a positive experience means they were heard, they were listened to, they were respected, and they learned something in the process, and, and they take those lessons forward, because that enables them to have that hope, have that agency, that even if an institution might be failing today, it's not broken forever. So this is something that I think we might need across the country. You're in seven, seven cities now. How does a teacher, for instance, or principal who might be interested in your work, how do they get it in their school? Is there a way for that to happen? Great question. So we're, we're in about seven states and we tend to work statewide because we adapt our curriculum to local state standards. So once we're in a state, it's much easier for a district leader, social studies leader, superintendent to get in touch with us. And, and we're active in Massachusetts, in Rhode Island, in New York in Pennsylvania, in California, in Oklahoma, in Texas, and in Kentucky. And so welcome hearing from school leaders in any of those states. Typically, if a school leader is interested in bringing this into the classroom, they will talk to one of our uh, team members who is in that state and go through a process over a few months of figuring out how will this work, what's the right place to bring it in, depending on what year they teach civics or what year they teach U.S. history, where they might already have a capstone or project-based experience component, or where that might be something that they're hoping to bring in. And in some schools, they might not really have a, a semester-long or year-long civics class yet, but that's something that they aspire to. We also sometimes work with ELA and, and, and literacy teachers and sometimes work with ethnic studies programs um, increasingly in states that have an ethnic studies program like California. We also are active in community-wide coalitions to expand support for civics education. I mentioned that civics has been underfunded for many, many years. And so there is actually important work, I think, for all of us to do as parents and community members to stand up for civics education and say that this needs to be funded and that we want all students to have the opportunity to engage in project-based civics. So it will not be a surprise to anyone listening that I think that every student in this in this country should have the opportunity to really engage with civics and with community change making as a part of their academic experience. The same way you are in a 11th grade biology class, you certainly hope that at some point you go into a lab, right? And, and open up a, a, a frog or a, a, you know, or, or a, a small, um, a small creature so you can understand how it really works. I think that should be true in, for every social studies class too. They need a chance to really engage hands-on. And so I'm always open, whether someone's interested from a state that I listed or a state I didn't list, in, in talking with them about ways to bring project-based civics into classrooms. So I see you're also part of a new pluralist field builder and the coalition chair for 50 times 2026. Tell me about that. 
Oh, thanks for asking. I really do value the opportunity to be working in partnership with other nonprofit and, and social change leaders around the country. And, and so love the chance I have to do through both of those groups. 50 by 2026 is a national coalition of leaders who, like us, feel that every student should have the opportunity for hands-on civics education. And our goal, as set out in 2020, was that by 2026, every state in the country would have resources dedicated for students to be able to have um, that project-based civics experience. I'm thrilled that with the work of leaders in 50 by 2026 and really committed elected officials in a number of states, we've been able to increase the number of states that have robust policy environment, robust regulatory environment to support community-based action civics. Um, Particularly, I want to note Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New Jersey, Utah as being states that have been particularly strong in this direction. And we're seeing a number of more states really lean into this work over the over this legislative uh, session and the next one. We're also though seeing some states that are moving in a different direction and states that are actually banning students to be able to have that kind of active project-based civics experience. And that's distressing. And it is really troubling for students who live in those states and who will be shortchanged in the rigor and fullness of the civics education that, that they will be allowed. What are some of the challenges that you're dealing with in expanding this work? So it's unfortunate, but the political polarization that has been growing over several years did not disappear with the crisis on January 6th. There was a brief moment, maybe a few weeks after January 6th, where there was bipartisan agreement, bipartisan interest in Congress and around the country in recognizing that given the challenges for our democracy, that civics education could be a place where there was a recognition that we had to support and strengthen our democracy. There was a bipartisan, bicameral support for the Civic Secures Democracy Act, a powerful bill that would really fund civics education in a a powerful way across the country. But unfortunately, we also have seen a number of organizations that have decided that students discussing current events, so-called divisive concepts, or contacting elected officials is not the direction that they feel like students should be going in. And they've put it under an umbrella that some people call a parents' rights movement. I tend to disagree with that framing because I know many parents, including myself, who actually feel very strongly that they want their children's schools to be really healthy institutions that are both teaching honest history and are uh, keeping to the civic mission of schools. But under this movement, there have been now, it's gone from rhetoric to legislation that has put a gag order on teachers being able to discuss race or gender in the classroom and putting a ban on both some books as well as some elements of honest history. And it's it's profoundly troubling. Even so there have been over a dozen states where bills have been passed that are in some way speaking to this vision of, of divisive concepts. And it's incredibly troubling because while the, the bills are vague and, and certainly many will be challenged, they have led teachers in one of the most challenging educational environments of our lives given COVID. They've led many teachers to feel a sense of fear over having conversations in the classroom that are related to the truth of our history over the last few hundred years or the truth of our present as their students might be bringing into the classroom. It's a very, very troubling moment. So we're talking about civics education in practice, essentially, yes. right? So we're, we're talking about a student who may, or groups of students who may say, In our school, we think this is an important issue. Let's assume it's lunches so that every kid could have lunch. Just throw that out there. And what they want to do is increase funding, see more funding for school lunch. 
So they get together, they draft a paper, they get together and they go to a state legislator's office or they go to a state senator's office or they go to the governor's office or they go to their congressperson's office and they say, you know, we understand how our government works. And we think that you have some ability to impact this issue for us. And we would like to see you take some action on behalf of kids who can't have lunch. Who would be against that? Who would, I mean, that's just how our government works. Yeah, we can sit and debate maybe which issues we get together and bring to our elected officials and bring to our administrative people in these governments. But we can't debate, I don't think, the process by which we're trying to educate and give some experience to our children to figure out how to impact. So are you saying that we're we're at a point where people don't want to see that either? So we're supposed to just vote, essentially, and just let the rest take its course. Is that what some people want to see happen here? Is, or am I missing something? No, sadly, what you described is correct in, in, in some states. There are legislators who seek to limit students' ability to be in a class where they are explicitly learning a, a, a framework or being encouraged or, or have time in the school day to consider such a proposal. Texas is one state, for example, that has banned a student's ability to do that or a school's ability to create foster an environment where that could happen. It's incredibly distressing. And as you can imagine, this is an issue that's very close to my heart, given not only the work that I do at Generation Citizen, but the fact that I, I know that I wouldn't be doing this work had I not had teachers that helped me in my middle school and high school years to feel a sense of connection to my community. I actually think that that work, as much as it is valuable for young people to identify an issue and, and, and take action and, and be successful in that, just the process of being heard and respected by adults along the way is important developmentally for young people to succeed. But yeah. it, is a, it is, I think, a feature of our times and just how polarized things have become around a range of civil rights issues, including voting. And now that is being, I think, extended into a desire to restrict the full citizenship of young people who, because they are not yet able to vote, are being discouraged from playing any role in community engagement and, and civic engagement. And that I think is wrong. Students have a right to vocalize issues that, that matter to them. And I think what is so important about the example that you gave and, and what we say to anyone who criticizes this approach is that this is all about encouraging students to unlock what they know for students to lift up their issues. There's no generation citizen saying, here's the one issue that all students must advocate on. Absolutely not. Quite the opposite. It's all about unlocking student agency. So, so this brings me to probably the final thing we're going to have time to discuss today, which is actually how we met through an organization called Convergence, Convergence Policy. I happen to be on the board of Convergence and had a chance to uh, interact with you as you were discussing your experience with one of the projects that we undertook some years ago at Convergence. I think it's important to talk about this in the context of the work you're doing, particularly the, the issues we just discussed, because Convergence is all about bringing people together of very different points of view to try to get problems solved. And it's not work that is for the faint of heart, let me say, because you can be in rooms with people who disagree with your very existence, it seems. <laughs> and yet there are commonalities that you have that if you give yourself a chance, you'll find. And through this process of convergence, people actually work together who have very different thoughts for how the country should go. And I wanted to just have you talk about your particular experience with Convergence and, and maybe how a project 
<laughs> like one to get people thinking more effectively about how we bridge a community around civics education. Because again, I think it's it's so important that young people not only get taught it in a book, but they have an opportunity to experience it. So what was your, what's your take on the convergence process and what was the project you were actually working on? Sure. I, you know, I had a a very positive experience um, with um, convergence um, starting back in 2015 and I was on a project around economic mobility. Uh, And I really appreciated the invitation to be a part of the the group. Convergence works with groups of about, I think, 30 or 40 individuals who they engage over the course of a year to two years so that groups can build trust and connection with each other because we are uh, working across lines, often a political, ideological, geographic difference, as well as as, um, differences based on identity. And working together towards a solving what have been intractable or or, or difficult challenges. I really appreciated the chance to be involved because at the time I was the chief of staff at Phipps Neighborhoods, which is an anti-poverty organization in the South Bronx. And the focus of the project was really on economic mobility, particularly for young people to get on that first rung of the ladder of opportunity so that they could keep going up and have choice-filled lives around their career and around their lives that they could build for themselves and their families. What I really enjoyed from my time there was a couple of things. One, part of the way we started was not to talk about our points of view about particular things that Congress might have been looking at or the president might have been looking at that week or that month. But we looked a generation in the future, right? We tried to see, is there some alignment that we might have as as 35 very different individuals about where we want to be in 30 years for this country in terms of economic opportunity and mobility? And to be able to put the aspiration further in the future, I think can really help a group um, that might feel very differently about the ways to get there, but to at least say, all right, we're trying to arrive at the same place. So I appreciated that part of the process. And I try to bring that into to different work that I get a chance to do and, and working across diverse groups. The other thing that I enjoyed in my, my process convergence was because of my experience in working in the South Bronx and, and working with young people who themselves were 18 to 24 year olds trying to climb that ladder of opportunity. I was able to have us host a few separate kind of focus groups and conversations that included the perspectives of young people. Those of us who participate in Convergence, they invite a really well-established leadership group of folks who have decision-making roles in major national and policy organizations across the country that may miss some of the wisdom from those who are closest to the the problem. And so that mattered to me very deeply in that process that we really hear directly from young people about what it is that they felt that they would want in in terms of additional resources for workforce development programs, for example, and, and what kind of careers do they feel like they could reach into and what kind of careers seemed far away and what would bring that distance closer so that they felt able to reach into any of the areas where they wanted to explore their talent and explore opportunity. And so Convergence has continued to grow since 2015 and tackle a range of of challenging issues and continues to, I think, bring attention to how can we have a small enough group where people can build trust, right? And, and, And you can really be in relationship with folks, not only in, in policy and in government, but folks in the business community and folks in, in non-for-profits, but also how can we make sure that we are creating more avenues for perspectives from those who have lived experiences of the challenges that, that the, the group is trying to address. So I'm really proud to um, continue to work side by side with many of the folks I got to know in Convergence as a part of the new pluralist field builders group where both Convergence and Generation Citizen are, are a part of that effort and, and where we're all working to see what would it take at the community level to see a greater sense of 
really trying to work together for the common good. But what I know in my heart, and this is from my convergence experience, some of which is, some of those moments were really challenging, is we have to have a foundation of respect, right? We have to have a foundation of, of respect when we relate to one another. And as our field in the social change field and policy, as, as we get more diverse and we see different faces of leadership, it is essential that we come to those conversations with humility and with mutual respect. Because only with that can people bring their best selves forward and be vulnerable on behalf of themselves and their organizations and try to find common ground. And I appreciate that uh, Convergence um, really takes step to make that happen. Well, thanks for that. And just so you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. And I am so appreciative that you agreed to be a part of this podcast and share the information that you did about Generation Citizen and the terrific work that you're doing to help bridge communities in a variety of ways. And so I just want to thank you. And uh, obviously, you know, we're going to keep in touch and uh, maybe we'll have you back here at some point in the future to talk about the latest uh, of what you're up to. And I want to also say to all of our listeners, I want to thank you also for listening in and remind you to subscribe to our show, The Heart of Giving podcast on all major podcast platforms. And be back here again next week for another edition of The Heart of Giving podcast. By the way, if you want to support us, we would be really grateful you can go to our website, give.org, and make a donation. By the way, give.org is doing tremendous work to help people make informed giving decisions and help charities express their trustworthiness by meeting the most rigorous standards in the nonprofit industry. So we hope you will check out give.org and make a donation. Okay, we'll see you again next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.